In the fall of 1979, I became involved with an initiative called Tax Big Oil. It was a California initiative sponsored by Bill Press to tax the excess profits of oil companies to finance public transit in California. We deployed volunteers with ironing boards and petitions to shopping centers and other public places to solicit signatures from voters to put the measure on the ballot. We did not win. Public transit did not benefit from the excess profits of oil companies, but I did benefit from the campaign by meeting a woman who became my wife, to whom I've now been married for 42-plus years. In November, voters will decide on at least 100 ballot measures across the nation. That's according to a database from the National Conference of State Legislatures. The measures range from marijuana access and Medicaid expansion to voting and abortion rights. Some of you have been taking part in ballot measure campaigns for decades. Ballot measures let citizens bypass their elected officials to make a direct change. But so far this year, lawmakers have proposed hundreds of tweaks to the process in their state or city, according to tracking from Ballotpedia. But critics say these changes attempt to rein in the ballot measure and curtail direct democracy. We'll get into it after the break. This conversation is part of our Remaking America project. Over the next two years, we'll explore Americans' trust in our democracy and the institutions critical to its survival. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We're discussing the ballot measure. Here to unpack the debate is Joshua Graham Lynn. He's the co-founder and CEO of Represent Us. That's a national nonpartisan group working on good government and pro-democracy laws. Joshua, good to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. Also with me is Corinne Rivera Fowler in Denver, Colorado. She's director of policy and legal advocacy for the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center. The group uses the ballot measure to push for more progressive state laws. Corinne, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we want to give a shout out to our partner station, KUNC, in northern Colorado for helping with the show. KUNC is one of six stations partnering with 1A's Remaking America project. So let's begin, Josh, by sort of establishing what a ballot initiative or referendum is. American citizens don't actually have a constitutional right to ballot initiatives? Less than half of states have an initiative process? Why? Well, about half states do have the initiative process. And the reason it's so important is, look, we elect elected officials to represent us. That's what we do. But we all know from our lived experience as Americans that elected officials don't always represent the interests of their constituents. Sometimes they represent special interests. Sometimes they represent their political party. And so the ballot initiative process is an opportunity for regular people to propose a law, put it up to a vote amongst their peers and amongst their fellow voters, and be able to write and pass that law so that they can direct their own destiny. And that is just such an important way for everyday Americans to have power over the political process. And that's why it's so important that we continue to build on that uh, that right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great argument for why we should have them. But Corinne, can you help us explain why not every state does? There have been different forms of initiatives and referendums around since at least the 1600s. Uh, Massachusetts was the first state to hold a statewide referendum. Um, how did this process actually begin and why isn't it in every state? 
Well, if you look back to the founding of our country, um, you might remember that our founding fathers didn't really intend for everyone in our country to have um, legal representation and rights, even um, within the government. So, um, you know, at the founding, the states actually did not have the right to propose and enact laws on their own, and direct democracy was not written into our original um, government and democracy process. Around the turn of the century, you know, um, farmers and workers um, around the nation and really in the western states, you know, saw an imbalance of power. Um, the railroad barons and the unequal wealth that was starting to occur um, was troubling, and representatives were beginning to represent those who had the most wealth. And so there was a, a progressive movement um, to build direct democracy into the new state constitutions that were being formed. And actually, the first state to put it into their constitution was South Dakota, um, and I believe that was in 1898 or the late 1800s. Um, and many states then followed. Um, and so it's most of the states that were forming their constitutions during that turn of the century that actually have the initiative process written as a right in their state constitutions. Um, the last state to come about um, was Mississippi, um, but most of the states did really write that in before 1920. And Mississippi was relatively, surprisingly recent. But I wonder, Corinne, how how much do these rules vary in terms of the the standard, uh, the measure for getting something uh, on the ballot as an initiative or a referendum and how tough it is to get things into law directly? Sure. The state process um, varies significantly across each state. The processes can be written into the Constitution or they can be statutory or mixed. Um, and really, there's so many um, different um, pieces of the process that can be managed. So, you know, you have the full life cycle of the ballot measure, which starts with drafting the language and working with your secretary of state. That can be different in every state. The language drafting may be supported by the legislative council or it may not be reviewed at all. Um, then you have, um, you know, the qualification process and signature gathering and what kinds of petitions and circulator um, guidelines are provided and, and, and um, required by your state. Um, the number of signatures and where you must gather signatures varies significantly. Even the, the size of the petitions and the font, the <laughs> font size on petitions can vary. So it's, it's quite different from state to state. So, Josh, you run this nonpartisan group um, promoting fair governance legislation. You, in the past, have promoted policies like ranked choice voting, anti-corruption work, fair districting. How do you decide when an issue is good or strong or appropriate for a ballot measure as opposed to lobbying politicians? What a great question. Uh, much like the process itself, it comes down to a state-by-state -state analysis. And what we're really looking for when we consider what good government reforms to put in place in a state is what do the citizens of that state want? What does the constitution of that state allow? Um, for instance, is it possible for us to, based on the constitution, pass a law like ranked choice voting that would give voters more power and more choice? And if it is possible, we look at the landscape, we look at the groups of uh, of organized activists in that state to see if they're ready and willing to go. Do they have the right le legal counsel? Uh, is there an opportunity for them to uh, gain local power and be in good stead with, with politicians? Uh, sometimes the question is, 
Uh, is there enough uh, local power and local goodwill with the sitting elected officials that a ballot initiative is not needed? Or is it the case that, uh, like, in, like in North Dakota and South Dakota, when we've passed ballot initiatives there, the politicians in charge were not cleaning up government? And so the opportunity was there for local citizens to take up the ballot initiative process to pass tougher ethics and transparency reforms that now made states like North Dakota lead the nation in terms of those, those measures. And that's not possible without the ballot initiative process. So we look at that whole mix of what's going on in a state and then really let local leaders lead because that's how democracy should work. We're discussing the ballot measure, and we'd like to welcome Representative Steve Haugard. He's a Republican lawmaker in South Dakota's House of Representatives. Steve, great to have you. Well, thank you very much. So, Steve, you're in South Dakota. We just heard that's the birthplace of the uh, ballot initiative process, at least when it comes to adding it into the Constitution. You want to put some limits on ballot initiatives. Why? Well, our effort this year was to try to raise the bar a little bit from a majority plus or a majority of voters to uh, a, to a 60 percent level. The reason for that is there's oftentimes confusion on some of these ballot measures. An example was in the past couple of years, there was a ballot measure in regard to marijuana, and it there was one that would become uh, an initiated measure that would become uh, state law. The other was a constitutional amendment. And both of those measures were over 20 pages long if you would have printed them out and actually read them. When it came to the, the one, it was generally in regard to medical marijuana, and that seemed to show a, a strong support that was 74% or something like that was supporting that measure. So I think the concept was generally understood. When it came to the, ballot, or it came to the constitutional amendment, that was a 54 to 46 result, and that tied together medical marijuana hemp, and um, recreational marijuana. And I think there is a fair amount of confusion through the process of advocating for those measures that the, the general public didn't really understand what the ultimate result was supposed to be. So that was, that was a concern. And the real concern about a constitutional amendment, which, like I said, was somewhere around 20-plus pages, was that that becomes law. And that's not subject to change unless you put it up for a vote again. Whereas the, the uh, part that becomes simply a state law, that is subject to some modification by the legislature. One would argue, though, that by trying to put it above 60, you're essentially creating a, a filibuster, right? I mean, you're, you're raising the, the standards for passing something to above 60 percent, which has caused problems on the federal level, as we all know. Um, why would we have a different standard for passing laws for the public as opposed to lawmakers, keeping in mind that statistics shows us that uh, most statistically speaking, at least, most lawmakers don't read entire bills before they vote on them. I mean, I understand you're saying that sometimes these are confusing, but even lawmakers in both the state houses and the federal Congress vote on legislation without reading all of it. Well, I, I agree with that as far as the, uh, the lack of information, and that, that carries over to the public, though, too. And the, the measure that we brought this year was to raise the bar to 60% for any measure that was going to expend as much as $10 million over the course of at least five years. And so in, in our state house and the Senate, it requires two-thirds majority, 67% of us, to vote through anything that spends even $1. 
So we were simply trying to match that mm. uh, to some degree for South Dakota. And, and it's, I think it's vitally important that people understand the issues. And sadly, most of these ballot measures uh, end up being some sort of an ad campaign where there's a fair amount of confusion on both sides. And it's, uh, it would be one thing with a ballot measure or uh, in regard to a constitutional amendment or initiated measure to change law if it was just a very simple concept, you know, such as we've had in the past where we would assert that uh, uh, an example was uh, marriage being defined as between a man and a woman. Okay, that, that uh, is fairly clear. But when it comes to measures like we had this past year where there are 20-plus pages, and even the sponsors of some of those, uh, those measures had not read them, and you could see that that was true because in the response to some questions, for one thing, but also the fact that uh, the measures themselves were incorrectly formatted and, and it was obvious there had been a cut-and-paste effort to put these things together. Um, Adam has a question for you. Uh, um, Adam says, let's say that a ballot initiative met all the criteria for your guests to believe it's what the voters wanted, but the ballot initiative was in favor of the don't say gay bill. Would they still be leading, willing to lend their expertise to that cause? I, I think this is a question for uh, Corinne and Joshua, but it kind of goes to you as well, because our guest Corinne has said that one of the reasons some lawmakers um, like you are attacking, well, she's attacking, limiting the ballot process is because it's often an av avenue where more progressive policies gain traction. Um, what's your response to that? Well, I would say that that's not correct. I would say that, uh, you know, even in our legislative process, it's oftentimes uh, a fair amount of confusion in the committees. But we'll argue over phrases and commas and all those types of things in a, a committee to make sure a bill is as accurate as we can make it on a given subject matter. And whereas these ballot measures, they are what they are. And then we're left with, uh, like I say, poorly drafted, poorly crafted uh, documents. And this was evident with these, these past couple of years where our Legislative Research Council did review the, the uh, proposed constitutional amendment and they told the sponsors that you have three subjects in here, and we limit our uh, consideration of issues to one subject at a time. They still brought it forward. It was then appealed to the Supreme Court after it passed by a small margin. It was appealed to the Supreme Court, and then it was overturned. Yeah. So there's there's those types of issues, but you know the like I guess I'd like to point out, in our state constitution, I suspect it's quite similar in others, Article 8, Section 1 of our state constitution says, the stability of a Republican form of government, depending upon the morality and intelligence of the people, it shall be the duty of the legislature to establish a standard and uniform system of education open to the public. And the whole point of that was, if you want a stable republic, which is a constitutional representative republic, then you need to make sure that people are uh, informed enough that they can make good decisions about who their elected representatives are going to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we fall short so many times. We end up electing politicians instead of electing people that can actually represent the best interests of the people. Which is an even deeper issue. Um, that was Representative Steve Haugard of South Dakota. Uh, Representative, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. So let's go back to our guest, Joshua, of Represent Us. Let, let me go to you first. Any res response to what the representative had to say? Oh, so many responses. Um, 
I think, first of all, the fact that something is 20 pages long, let's say, uh, doesn't, first of all, make it bad. Uh, I assume that the representative himself is a slightly complicated person with lots of dimensions, but he trusts the voters in the state to elect him with a 50 vote plus one, 50 percent plus one vote majority. That's how he got into office. But this kind of constant refrain that voters don't understand what they're voting for and how could they possibly make laws, they're just people. I mean, what kind of a thing is that to say about the people that you represent that you don't trust the folks who elected you to also write laws that they want to live under. Uh, I think it's just very dismissive of, of the constituency, and it's reflective of the kind of dismissiveness that we see in the political class across this country, where they just think that they either they know better or they are incentivized to put laws in place that don't work for the public interest, but ending up working for their private interests or mm. for the party interests. And that's just not good for America. I, I wonder, Corinne, there's a lot of focus right now on abortion rights, and we're going to talk about that more this hour. Um, abortion rights are now up to individual state legislatures for the most part. It, are you thinking that there could be citizen-initiated measures um, used to either protect or not protect reproductive rights? Certainly, and we will see those on the ballot this year. Um, there already are a number of measures qualified um, on both sides of the issue. Even before the Roe decision, um, advocates were, you know, ramping up to prepare for what we knew was coming forward from SCOTUS. So we will see proactive measures on the ballot, definitely in California and Vermont, to protect reproductive rights in the state constitution. And then in Kansas in August, in the special election, there will be a no right to abortion considered. Um, a similar no right in Kentucky during the general election. And then in Montana, there's an effort to criminalize women and doctors um, who are seeking abortion um, that will also be on the ballot. And then there are number in gatherings on uh, qualification. Michigan is gathering signatures and will turn in um, early July. Arizona is gathering signatures for proactive, and then there is a Colorado measure that is also gathering on the attack side. So yeah. this is an historic year for to see rep reproductive health and rights on the ballot. We've never seen this kind of activity before. And Joshua, I wanted to get to another criticism that the representative had about the ballot initiative process, which was about sometimes confusing language. And and there are times when ballot measures are phrased in such a way to purposely sort of make you think you're voting for one thing and you're voting for another to sort of muddy the waters here. What's your response to that criticism? Well, anybody that's worked on a ballot initiative process will tell you that it is certainly not a simple process to get language onto the ballot. It involves having lawyers involved. It involves following the state constitution, following state laws. You heard working with the Secretary of State. There is a rigorous process that is involved in just qualifying a measure for the ballot. Um, and as the representative said, in his state, a law passed and was deemed unconstitutional by the state Supreme Court. It sounds like the process actually worked beautifully in that in that case where it was deemed unconstitutional and that's what the court is there for. And you know, I imagine that the proponents of that specific ballot initiative uh, were probably disappointed and had to go drop back to the drawing board. And sometimes that's the way that a republic or our democracy works. Uh, we don't all win everything we want all the time. 
But to say that that means that we shouldn't have access to the process is just sort of twisting the case, right? Because there is a rigorous process. There is rigorous debate. Uh, people do fight for weeks or months over small phrases in the language of the law or the way it gets put on the ballot. And so I would contend that that's all part of a really successful process that is designed to give voters the best possible option to decide what they think is best. Laura emails, just thinking, perhaps if people don't understand the initiatives, we could require the people proposing them to be clearer. This would solve the problem better than changing the vote ratio to pass, which doesn't address the quote-unquote problem at all. But a a question here for you, Corinne. Stephanie emails, let's be frank, only Republican-led legislatures are trying to limit, restrict, or do away with ballot measures. Please name a Democratic-led state that is doing this. Remember when the Florida legislator decided decided to impose rules on the successful measure to restore voting rights to ex-felons. Corinne, can you you fact-check this for me? No, that's absolutely accurate and true. Um, And that's, you know, the point that we're seeing is, and I love that she brought up the Florida Restoration Initiative, um, because they are working post haste after the ballot measure has been approved by voters to block the implementation of ballot measures. Um, And so that was what happened in Florida. And we are seeing that all around the country, whether they're, you know, in Missouri, um, they attempted to block um, the funding for the Medicaid expansion that passed there. Um, In Arizona, um, they brought legal challenges, multiple legal challenges and legislation to to uh, block Proposition 208, which raised um, taxes on the wealthy. And so it is in states with conservative um, GOP majorities where we're seeing these attacks to the ballot initiative process specifically. We're discussing the ballot measure. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, to be part of future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation on the ballot measure with this message from Debbie in Athens, Ohio. She told us about her time gathering signatures for a ballot campaign. I have participated in a number of petition drives, including the uh, drive to end gerrymandering in Ohio, both in 2015 and 2018. First of all, the petition drive was remarkably easy. Everyone I talked to just made a right angle turn from where they were headed. Yes, I'd love to sign this. I want to end, I want to end gerrymandering. Our next guest is in the middle of signature gathering. Joel Edmond is the co-executive director with the Arizona Democracy Resource Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks for being with us. Of course. Thank you for having me. So you are in the midst of gathering signatures for your fair elections ballot measure. What would this measure do? Yeah, thank you. We, um, we've got about a week and a day left until we turn in signatures um, for the fair elections campaign which really is all about making our democracy in Arizona um, be rooted and and work for our people. Um, We have faced, over the years, countless barriers to being able to vote, to access this ballot initiative system. Um, And overall, there's been this persistent feeling that I think is shared across the political spectrum by voters that our voices just aren't heard um, very often at the state capitol and in our political process. So 
this is all aimed at making decisions really um, come back to what is needed by, by us, we the people here in Arizona. We just heard Debbie saying that people were really happy to sign her petition. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like when you approach people across Arizona? Do they turn and walk the other way or, or are, are they interested in hearing what you have to say? No, I think we're having a pretty similar experience here in Arizona, and there's a few different hook lines that work very well, we found. I mean, there's um, a lot of barriers we're trying to roll back in the ballot initiative, but one, for example, last year we used to have a permanent early voting list in Arizona that you would not get kicked off of unless, you know, you left Arizona, were no longer a voter, that sort of thing. But now the legislature has put on um, a sort of purging process where if you don't use that early ballot, quote unquote, often enough, uh, you'll be removed from the list. And telling people, you know, do you want to restore the permanent early voter list? Or do you want to protect the rights voters with disabilities to vote curbside? Um, do you want to protect voting by mail, period? Those are all things that very often get an immediate, oh, yes, um, sign and, and then tell me what else this does. Um, so no, we're having a very similar positive experience out in the field. So you said you have a week and a day left to turn in your signatures? Yes, the deadline will be next Thursday, July 7th. How confident are you that you'll have enough signatures in time? Yeah, we're feeling good. Um, obviously, we're making a big push right now to get every single signature um, that we can and get every sheet back in to us um, from folks that have been collecting all over the state. But we're confident um, that when all is said and done next Thursday, we'll be turning in um, well over enough signatures to qualify for this November's ballot. So, Josh, even ballot measures are only as effective as the voting process in this country. And that's something that has been up for debate lately, not only because of, of gerrymandering, moving people from one district to another, but also because of access to polling places, early voting, um, the debate over voter IDs. I wonder what you think uh, about the state of our fair elections at this point, especially as it re relates to giving everyone access to vote on ballot measures. Well, I think the first thing we need to say is unequivocally, everyone should have secure, fair access to the ballot in this country. Uh, it's a fundamental right. It's one of the, as Reagan said, it is our shining, it is the crown jewel of this shining city on a hill that we have the right to vote in the United States of America. And so that needs to be protected. And I think as you've heard on this call, uh, many times the process, the ballot initiative process is used to pass laws that give voters better access to the ballot. Uh, better, fairer voting districts, which take away the power of politicians to, for instance, gerrymander their way into power. Uh, sometimes the ballot initiative process can be used to put strict ethics and transparency laws into place so that um, politicians aren't taking you know, big gifts from the same lobbyists that are lobbying them to pass laws. These are all things that give voters the kind of power that we're talking about. And so I see it as very symbiotic, where we're talking about a process that can be used to empower voters, and we're also talking about the need for voters to be empowered so that they can participate in this process. And either way, what it comes down to is if you're on the side of believing that the American people should have a strong voice, then you should be on the side of the ballot initiative process. Certainly, it's not perfect. Certainly, some bad actors will try to take advantage of it. But ultimately, it is a process that empowers the voters, and we need to protect it for that reason. But Corinne, what 
changes would you make to strengthen the ballot initiative process? And I and I ask that in light of what I just talked about with Joshua, the fact that there are real debates and important questions about access to um, the polling place, period. Uh, people's ability to get an early vote in, people's ability to, f- to fill, file an absentee ballot, etc. Um, how might you make this process stronger? If anything, I think it should be more accessible to the grassroots and the individuals in the state. Um, There are, you know, some supports and mechanisms that we could provide um, as far as around the language drafting and support from legislative councils in the state. Some states do um, provide that. But generally, you know, a campaign, an an organization, a group of individuals has to hire an attorney and get that support from them. So that's an expense issue. Um, It is expensive to gather the signatures. And we have seen, you know, volunteer efforts um, successfully gather. But um, in some states, there are geographic signature requirements. There are very high thresholds of signatures. And so making it more accessible to the average citizen is really what we would support. And there are lots of different ways to um, provide those supports through our secretaries of states, through our um, local elections um, officials, and through our attorney generals. And so um, we just would like to see the costs coming down and the support mechanisms um, being more readily available, less onerous requirements. Um, some of the requirements are really, you know, petition um, sizes and and um, circulator requirements can be rather costly and confusing. So making it very clear um, and um, <clears throat> able for the average person. Corinne Rivera-Fowler is the Director of Policy and Legal Advocacy at the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, and Joshua Graham-Lynn is co-founder and CEO of the nonpartisan group Represent Us. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us. This conversation is part of our Remaking America project. Over the next two years, we'll explore Americans' trust in our democracy and the institutions critical to its survival. Remake in America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.